Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today, I'm excited to feature yet another episode in our series on the Commune Podcast called Ask Dr. G. Uh, we are consistently in receipt of very interesting questions from our Commune community regarding health, and I simply cannot imagine anyone better suited to answer these inquiries than my friend, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. So Sarah has been kind enough to lend her considerable experience and knowledge here on the show to answering these questions. Dr. G is a Harvard-educated physician, researcher, and educator. She received the moniker of Dr. G from the Philadelphia 76ers, for whom she serves as health coach. She has led commune courses on the topics of perimenopause and menopause, and happily, we seem successful in luring her up to commune Topanga on a regular basis where she is leading retreats. So you can be part of the conversation here on the podcast and submit your questions at onecommune.com backslash askdrg, that's A-S-K-D-R-G. We'd love to hear from you. To learn more from Dr. G, you can watch her free commune masterclass, Women, Food, and Hormones at onecommune.com slash menopause. That's onecommune.com slash menopause. We're so grateful to those of you who write us reviews on Apple Podcasts that we created a special offer for you, 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review, preferably a positive one, to receive your all-access pass for 30 days. Okay, in today's episode, Dr. G and I tackle exercise. Specifically, Dr. G addresses what we should do, when we should do it, how often, and for how long. And can we overdo exercise? Well, Dr. G cites an interesting study on the relationship between ultra-endurance exercise and coronary artery disease. And that just might surprise you a little bit and surprise me. Uh, as always, this was a fascinating conversation and I hope you enjoy it. So without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. Hi, Sarah. Great to be with you. Hi, Jeff. Great to be with you. So um, there are three eternal questions that uh, I get incessantly, but I think have been asked in, for time immemorial. One is, why are we here? We're not going to get to that. Um, are all of these rated G? <laughs> <laughs> PG-13 for us. Um, the second is, what do we put in our mouths? We might talk about that, and we have. And the third is, how should we move our bodies? And uh, that third question will be hopefully the source of our conversation today, because there's so, um, there's so much debate about how we should exercise. And in fact, you sent me a confounding study by text the other day, and I'll just sort of read the top line here, which is, Lifelong endurance sports participation is not associated with a more favorable coronary plaque composition as compared to a healthy lifestyle. Lifelong 
endurance athletes had more coronary plaques. So we're talking about exercise here and cardiovascular disease. And it's saying that people that have exercised over a lifetime don't seem to have better profiles from a cardiovascular perspective. And that seems to fly in the face of everything that we've ever heard. So that's sort of the jumping off spot. Um, how do we get at how we should move our bodies for optimal health? I usually start with what does the science tell us in total? And I, I agree with the Centers for Disease Control. You know, they try to make recommendations for the average American. They try to make recommendations that are evidence-based, that are supported by multiple randomized trials that are concordant. And so their recommendation about movement, how I should move my body, is a total of 150 minutes of exercise each week, plus two weight training episodes. Mm -hmm. So 150 minutes, that's basically five times a week, 30 minutes. That would be the lower limit of what is recommended. What's interesting about this study is that it brings into question the idea of a dose response in terms of exercise. So the study looked at men. It's important to understand some of the limitations of the study. They didn't look at women at all. And they looked at three different groups. They looked at lifelong exercisers, those who became endurance exercisers over the age of 30, and then they looked at healthy non-athletes. And at the time that this study was published, which was this year, 2023, in the European Heart Journal, we've had a preponderance of data showing in aggregate that exercise is good for you and there's a dose response curve to it. So people who exercise have lower coronary heart disease, which is the number one killer, and it's one of the things that they measured in the study. So what was surprising in the study is that they actually found that there was more plaque in the exercisers compared to the healthy non-athletes. And so I want to get into the weeds with you a little bit about what this showed. My feeling overall is that we're still at the same place in terms of thinking that exercise is good for you. So I don't think that this takes away from the idea that you're going to lower your risk of the number one killer with exercise. But we do have to consider that there's more plaque than we previously thought in people who are potentially over-exercising, who are doing endurance exercise. So let me back up for a second. There's a few studies that have looked at endurance athletes, especially marathon runners, and many of them showed increased coronary calcium levels. And the way that you measure that is with a CT scan of the heart. It's like a really brief. Have you had one, by the way? No, but I've been recommended to have one. Yes. At age 45, I yeah. think all of us, male well, and female, I, should have it. Yeah, I showed high, kind of in the basic panel that your doctor runs, I showed high serum calcium. And she was like, no, you got to go get a specialized test. So I haven't done that yet. So this test is really important. It depends on where you live. I had my test done in Nashville where it only cost $150 to get it. 
up around the Bay Area, it costs about $250 to $300 to get it done. Usually you can self-refer, so you can get this test done without a doctor's mm -hmm. uh, requisition. So these previous studies showed that marathon runners had higher coronary artery calcium. And we think that is associated, it's a marker, an intermediate marker of calcified plaques in their coronary arteries. So there's a few different types of plaques. They're the ones that are calcified that are measured with this particular test. And then there are the non-calcified plaques. And that can be picked up with a coronary angiography computed tomography, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's a way of looking at plaques that are not calcified. And then you can also measure both. You can measure mixed. And so what this study contributed is that it looked at all the different types of plaques. So this is a study that rests on this baseline foundation of thinking that people who are marathon runners might have more plaque, at least the calcified type, compared to non-athletes. So what, what I think is critical to understand is that in this study, they found that the type of vulnerable plaque, the type that really could kill you, was less in those that were the elite athletes. So both the lifelong exercisers and also the late onset exercisers, they had less vulnerable plaque compared to the healthy non-athletes. So that's one important point. Second important point is that the coronary arteries of people who exercise vigorously are bigger. Mm -hmm. So they might have more plaque. And then the question is, is it significant? Is it clinically significant? And so my third point is that when you measure something that's an intermediate marker, like coronary arteriography, angiography, computed tomography, or coronary artery calcium score, it's not the same as measuring what's known as a heart outcome, like a myocardial infarction, a heart attack. Right. So we don't know that exercisers, even if they have more plaque in their bigger coronary arteries, if that actually translates to more clinical events. So we need more data to really be able to say if that's the case. So those are the three points I want to make about this study in particular. But it circles back to this question of dose response. So is there, you know, you think of your response to almost any form of hormesis. And you and I love to talk about hormesis. Exercise is a form of hormesis. It's a positive stress for the body. And there's a, you can think of a bell-shaped curve where people on the low end who aren't exercising enough, who have a more sedentary lifestyle, they have increased risk of coronary heart disease. Yeah. They just don't move enough. Then there's people in the middle and that's where the 150 minutes of exercise each week plus two resistance training episodes, that's where the recommendation comes from. Is it possible that if you exercise too much, if you over-exercise, that you reach the point of diminishing returns? Mm -hmm. And so what that's what the study gets to, but I don't think it answers it. Hmm. That is so interesting. Yeah, so... We know that exercise elicits an inflammatory response on a sh short-term inflammatory response, but a long-term anti-inflammatory response. 
Same is true for oxidative stress. There's an oxidative stress response to, to exercise, but then um, over the long term, it confers a health benefit. But as you say, that is in response to very specific kind of deliberate short-term and post-stress, a, a specific amount of exercise. So is there possible, yeah, like you say, to be to do too much and be on the other side of that curve? Um, How do you define oxidative stress? How do you think about it? I mean, I'm always kind of in the world of reactive oxygen species and, you know, versus antioxidants in the, the mitochondrial world of oxidative stress, um, essentially through metabolic dysfunction or perhaps through exercise that at the mitochondrial level, you can be producing hydroxyl radicals or other forms of, of free radicals um, that are not neutralized or mitigated by the amount of antioxidants that you're um, that you're producing endogenously, and that's going to lead to some degree of chronic oxidative stress. Is that is that fair? That's fair. You know, I I always love your seesaw analogy, and I think that comes into play here. So the way I think of oxidative stress is that it's it's almost like the rust of living. So just by breathing, you create this rust. Right. And then you want to be in this process, kind of like a seesaw, where you create rust and then you remove the rust. You create rust, you remove the rust. And I think the same is true as you described, that you make these reactive uh, oxygen species and then you want to counter them. You want to quench them with antioxidants. And that can come from your food. It can come from supplements. There's lots of different ways to do it. Food is probably my favorite. And so some people have a really good balance between the amount of reactive oxygen species that they're creating, and they've got the antioxidants to match it. Some people have an imbalance. And the point you're making, which I think is critical, is that is it possible that over-exercising creates too much oxidative stress which then can damage the blood vessel, maybe the endothelium, yeah. maybe almost cause what you might think of as an autoimmune reaction inside the blood vessel, the coronary arteries. And so that's really, in my mind, the question behind this study as well as similar studies. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're talking about plaques in this regard, are these the same plaques that we associate with you know, small oxidized LDL particles or are these that get lodged in the arterial walls and then develop into, as macrophages try to remove them and can't, they develop foams and then harden into plaques. Are these the same, are they the same plaques or are calcified plaques a different form of plaque? So there's a, I think of it as a continuum that there's on one end, there's the completely normal, healthy blood vessel that hopefully you're born with. And at the extreme other end is a blood vessel that's completely blocked or has stenosis because it's got a plaque, the plaque is ruptured, there's a blood clot, there's probably some calcified part to it as well as non-calcified part. And there's a whole spectrum between the two extremes. And so LDL, as you said, small dense LDL, inflammatory particles are part of that continuum. And you can actually measure where you are on that map. Mm -hmm. So we've got biomarkers to be able to test that. I use, for instance, Cleveland Heart Lab and Quest to be able to figure out where people are on that line. Mm -hmm. And what do you look at? Do you look at like uh, 
LDL biomarkers or more like triglyceride and HDL ratios, or do you look at AP, uh, APOB, or is there anything that you look at in particular? Yeah, great question. So I do advanced lipid biomarkers. Mm-hmm. I, I'm the director of precision medicine at um, Thomas Jefferson University at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health. And so I work mostly with executives and with professional athletes. And so as part of their intake, we do advanced lipid testing. So we'll, you know, I would say the way of testing lipids when I went through medical training, which as you know, is a million years ago. So back in 1989, we would do total cholesterol, uh, HDL, high density lipoprotein, the so-called good cholesterol. The story's, you know, more complex, of course. We would look at low density lipoprotein and we'd look at triglycerides. I think of that as, you know, really the early process. So those are still important, but we now know that you can fractionate these different um, classes. So you can take LDL, it's the small dense LDL that really blocks arteries. The large fluffy LDL is less likely to do that. So I do fractionation. I like to measure ApoB because it's a more direct measurement than LDL. Mm-hmm. I also look at some of these inflammatory markers that can tell you where you are in that continuum from health to disease with plaque formation. And that includes things like oxidized LDL, Mm -hmm. uh, LPA, uh, P2. It includes um, myeloperoxidase. So there's a number of different biomarkers. Maybe we can link to some of them in the show notes. And so it's a combination of looking at the lipoprotein pathways together with inflammatory pathways. And uh, it allows us to get a really good snapshot of where someone is. Mm-hmm. And then it sets you up to do some precision treatment that's personalized to the individual. Mm-hmm. But this point about oxidative stress, I think, is really critical because the question is, ultimately, what's the right amount of exercise for you? And how do you define that line between the optimal amount of exercise for you and then potentially crossing the line into overexercise and too much oxidative stress. So from what we've talked about already, you can see that this depends on a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Depends on genetics, it depends on environment, the food that you eat, how many antioxidants you have in your system, your risk factors. So there's a lot of different variables for the most part in these studies including the one that we're talking about today. They've controlled for these confounders and for risk factors. But I can also tell you from taking care of an NBA team that these players that I take care of who are mostly in their 20s and 30s, they're playing basketball for, you know, 45 plus minutes the nights that they have games. They do a lot of training, sometimes two to three hours of intense oxidative stress producing exercise. How do they then quench the oxidative stress? And I can tell you from looking under the hood, they don't always, Mm -hmm. especially when they go to Chick-fil-A, because that adds to the problem. Mm. So we have to figure out, is there a line for you in terms of over-exercise? And what I've landed on, in here I'm going to invoke one of my mentors. So Mark Houston is a physician in Nashville who's really devoted his entire career to looking at some of the lifestyle factors involved in cardiometabolic disease. And I've done a two-year fellowship with him. 
And what he's landed on, based on reviewing thousands and thousands of studies, is that about an hour a day of pretty intense exercise, six days a week, is optimal for cardiometabolic health, for the reduction of your risk of coronary heart disease. And that's not something if you're sedentary, you want to start doing right away. You want to build up to it slowly. And he's really found, based on the literature again, that about 50% weight training with 50% cardio is the right balance. Mm -hmm. I want to get into the balance and I want to pull apart different forms of cardio because there's the zone three through five cardio, which is sometimes classified as high intensity. There's zone two, which often uses a different kind of fuel. We'll get there. But one thing that you mentioned, um, which uh, seems to me to be a, a quite a, a dangerous elixir, is a poor diet, particularly seed oils and hydrog hydrogenated oils and trans fats, along with oxidative stress, that those two in combination um, are, uh, could be a dangerous recipe for arterial health in general, given how inflammatory that, that combination could be between like linoleic oil and, um, or acid and an oxidative stress and ROS. That's absolutely the case. And so that's why, you know, I, I remember when I first started working with NBA players, I had one player in particular who filled out the food diary and he wrote for breakfast, lunch, and dinner that he eats chicken wings. And I was a little bit horrified because these were not baked chicken wings with, you know, really benevolent different ingredients. These were fried, probably in industrial seed oil, maybe trans fats. So no one should be eating industrial seed oils. No one should be eating trans fats. They're so inflammatory. So you're right. When you put that together with this risk of overexercise, it's a dangerous combination. It sets you up for high inflammatory tone. And as if that weren't enough, you also have a situation where for elite athletes, pretty much everyone I've ever tested has increased intestinal permeability. Hmm. So they've got so-called leaky gut. And so they have this whole inflammatory process that's happening in their gut, kind of separate from the oxidative stress conversation. So we just know that that's true for most elite athletes. Yeah, and and looks are deceiving because they all look like Adonis from the right, outside, right? Right, they have this yeah. physical majesty that's just gorgeous, and and yet you know when I see these guys that are their bodies are, I mean they won the genetic lottery and they, um, you know, they're all so tall and so lean and their muscle mass is amazing. They've got body fat that's somewhere around, you know, five to 10%. They are ideal uh, human specimens. And, you know, when the rookie is told that they have to go to Chick-fil-A and get the order for the entire team and bring it to the plane, it just makes my heart fall because that's not the right fuel for these guys. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they really need their vegetables. Yeah. And so what I've done with my team is I make customized smoothie recommendations for all of them. So at least they start the day with the antioxidants that they need. Mm -hmm. And so I just love it. I've, the last time I saw my team, 
they all had laminated personalized smoothie recipes that they would take to the smoothie station and they'd get their broccoli sprouts and their spirulina and they'd add their, you know, steamed cauliflower that's frozen to give it some, you know, coldness and some texture and their protein powder, usually, you know, with maybe beef protein or something that's low in inflammation. So, yeah, it's really critical to realize that you gotta you gotta slow down that inflammation. And elite athletes have a high level of inflammatory tone. Mm -hmm. Hey, it's Jeff. And when it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder and reach farther and go that extra mile. Well, this relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance for the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist right there in your pocket. If you're interested in this innovative service, I've got great news for Commune listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. G. That's insidetracker.com forward slash DRG. So let's talk a little bit about the differences between different kinds of aerobic training. So there is this kind of emergent class of, of exercise known as zone two, um, which I think is reflective of where your heart rate, where you have elevate your heart rate to, I believe. And so I'm not sure where zone two is like 60% of, or 70% of maximum heart rate, something like that. Um, what I have heard is that zone two exercise leverages fat as fuel. Um, and the kind of more high intensity interval training is really leveraging stored glucose glycogen or glucose as fuel. So, you know, through that, you know, one might make the, the, the determination or the assumption that zone two is better at burning fat. Um, where are you, where do you stand across uh, the spectrum of zone two versus high intensity and what we're using uh, to fuel our bodies with each respective exercise type? I think about it in a few ways. What I would say is that in my experience, there's two different ways to define these zones. So one way to do it is with heart rate training and to understand uh, the heart rate zone for each of these um, 
And what I think is more interesting, at least in my experience, is to do it based on um, functional threshold training, so power zone training. So that's the way that I do zone two training. So for instance, I've got a Peloton and I do an FTP once a quarter. And so I determine um, my functional threshold in terms of power. Hmm. And from that, I define zone one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So I do zone two and zone three training on the days that I'm going easier or when I'm doing endurance. And then I do four, five, six, seven on the days that I'm going harder, especially, you know, more five, six when I'm doing more anaerobic training. So that's the way I think of it. And I love how Peloton, I hope I can mention them. I love how they have made this more mainstream Mm -hmm. and they've gotten the lexicon, the language of uh, power zone training more into the mainstream. I think that's a huge contribution in terms of exercise. What, you know, a lot of the patients that I work with are, um, I've got these elite athletes, but I also have a lot of people who are relatively new to exercise or they hate to exercise and they're trying to figure out what to do based on the latest thinking. And I like to start with the base of zone two training. I think you have to be really efficient and good at zone two training before you build up to doing more of the higher zone training. And I also think it's essential that If you think of, okay, how should we move if we get back to that basic question, I think what you want is you want to be consistent about exercise. So I'm a big fan of getting to six days a week. And you also want to be in all of these zones. Mm -hmm. So I'll call out one um, trainer in particular on the Peloton, Matt Wilpers. Are you on the Peloton at all? I'm not. Okay. So there's... Matt Wilpers is from Georgia. He's got just this adorable kind of aw personality. And he just makes zone training so delightful. And so with the zone training that he teaches people to do, he usually builds over about six weeks to, to understand what their FTP is at baseline. Like what is, what is your functional threshold for power? And then you typically do one or more endurance rides per week. You do one ride that's um, more hard, so more anaerobic threshold work, and then you do one that's kind of a range of the two. So, you know, if you, he just has a, a protocol that takes you through all of them so that you're training through all of these zones. So I found that to be the most helpful in terms of the science of it and zone two training. I remember once before I said, I wish we could have Peter Atia here because I think he's really one of the best minds when it comes to zone two training. He knows a lot more than I do about this. Fair enough. Um, exercise is very associated with mood regulation. Um, and we all know about the concept of the runner's high, for example. Um, and this has to do with the endogenous production of certain neurotransmitters, but also endorphins. So is there a particular exercise or zone that one must hit to that that's optimal for mood regulation or endorphins? Um, or, or, you know, I, I generally associate that with sort of more long-term endurance training, running, et cetera. But I'm curious about that. It's a great question. So I, I actually think of exercise 
as a mood treatment mm -hmm. more so than, you know, a way to manage weight. I think if you want to manage your weight, you really have to focus on food. Exercise is important yeah. too, but I think about 80% of the equation is food. Yeah. So I've got ADD. Exercise is my number one treatment. You know, I've tried stimulants in the past, Adderall and Vyvanse, all those things, and nothing works for me like exercise does. So it helps me with dopamine signaling. What I found personally is that I have to exercise pretty hard to feel the endorphin rush. Mm -hmm. So that includes running. So for me with running, with interval training, that's the way that I really am able to access the endorphins. Same thing with, um, you know, mountain biking or with really any form of exercise where you're pushing yourself pretty hard. I think of it in terms of, you know, the body, the form of hormesis that I believe I'm thinking of signals right now. So if you think of the growth hormone signal and kind of activating growth and repair in the body, another essential part of exercise, I really believe that Sprint 8 had a really good concept. Have you heard of Sprint 8 before? Mm, yeah. So I have a friend who told me about this maybe 10 years ago. And it's this idea that you exercise at a moderate level. Maybe you're running. So you exercise at a moderate level. You warm up for five minutes. And then you sprint all out for 60 to 75 seconds. So if you're running, you're running at full effort. Like you just can't go another second once you hit that 75 seconds. Then you go back to the moderate exercise and then you sprint again. And you do total a total of eight rounds of that. So that's been shown to be one of the most effective ways to raise growth hormone. So growth hormone does a lot of different things. As you might imagine, it's involved in growth and repair of a lot of the cells of the body, especially your muscles. It also helps you with uh, preventing um, fat gain at the midsection. And I found that my growth hormone was on the lower side. The proxy for it is IGF-1. Hmm. And so just by doing Sprenate, you know, I like to do these N of 1 experiments. Mm -hmm. So I did Sprenate for about six weeks, and I raised my growth hormone by about 50%. I kept everything else constant. Hmm. So that kind of anaerobic training can be very effective for changing some of the signals in the body. That's one of the ways that I think about it. And then in terms of the science of what type of exercise is the most effective at releasing endorphins, I don't know the answer to that. I would imagine that it has something to do with anaerobic threshold, but I don't know that for sure. Hmm. When you say anaerobic threshold or anaerobic training, are you referring to a to the body's transition into essentially making energy through glycolysis through anaerobic means? Yes. Got it. So you push your body to a certain place where it's no longer reliant on oxygen for the creation of ATP. It actually has to produce it anaerobically Correct. through glycolysis. Is that right? Okay. Yes. Got it. And now, there was sort of a mythology for a long time that when you, um, that in glycolysis, when you're essentially using glucose to make ATP, one of the byproducts of that is lactic acid. And there was, there was always a sort of a mythology that, you know, if you're not getting enough oxygen and you're producing lactic acid, that's what makes your actual muscles sore the next day. I think that's been mostly upended, but do, do you understand any of that science? 
Yeah, I I grew up with that mythology as well. I feel like we're at a place now where lactate threshold, understanding the role of lactate has really evolved. In Mm -hmm. fact, there's um, some of the producers of the continuous glucose monitoring that you and I enjoy so much. They're also looking at measuring lactate. Mm. So I think lactate's a really interesting molecule and I wouldn't, we no longer just think of it in terms of making your muscles sore. Yeah. So how do you balance cardio and aerobic and anaerobic training with resistance training? Love that question. So it feels like this is a constant evolution for me, and I've arrived at a place that I'm pretty happy with right now. So I do weight training typically four days a week. I mostly do it in an app. So there's an app that I love where I've got a personal trainer who's in Indiana And she gives me pep talks occasionally, which I need. I need a cheerleader because I'm not someone who loves to exercise. And so I do about a 30-minute, pretty intense, you know, heavy lift four Mm -hmm. days a week. Mm -hmm. And so she is in charge of kind of alternating the muscle groups so that I'm not, you know, doing too much and setting myself up for injury. And then I balance that with more aerobic activity. I love to be outside. So for me, that's mostly hiking at a pretty good clip. And I do that, you know, typically the 30 minutes, I'm then thinking, okay, six days a week, I need at least 30 minutes, six days a week of aerobic exercise. And so that's going to be, for the most part, um, hiking, which I do for an hour, an hour and a half at a time, mountain biking. Sometimes I do some uh running, you know, kind of a sprint eight format, but I don't run like I used to do. You know, I I wonder if you did this, Jeff. So back when, say I was in medical school, like 1989 to 1994, I used to go to the gym and I would do what I call now chronic cardio. Yeah, sure. Right. So I would get on the treadmill and I would just run (laughs) or I'd get on the elliptical and I would just, you know, put a New Yorker on there and I would just go to town. Totally. And what we know about that is it raises cortisol. So it can Mm -hmm. raise these stress hormones and it can cause some wear and tear in the body. And so we think that alone is no longer the right approach, even though that kind of was part of the recommendation, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah, I know. And then, you know, you talk about weight management and its relationship to diet and exercise. I totally agree with you. I don't really think you can kind of work out your way into optimal weight. It's really got to be about food. And, you know, when I'm in the gym and I see people essentially doing that sort of like endless cardio on the elliptical and my heart sort of falls for them, I'm like, you can be on there for three hours. You're not going to accomplish the goal that you want, which is probably in that case, often the case, weight loss. So, And another important piece is health span. So we know that there's all these markers that can indicate whether you're on the right path with HealthSpan, whether you're, you know, aging biologically at a slow pace or an accelerated clip. And a really important piece of that is tracking your body composition over time. So we know that lean body mass is a really important biomarker of the aging process. And what happens for most of us over 40 or over 50 is we start to lose muscle mass. Mm-hmm. So unless you're doing something active to prevent that, chances are you're accelerating the aging process by 
gaining body fat and losing muscle mass. Mm -hmm. So the more that you can work against that by lifting weights, lifting heavy, doing the pull-ups, I want to hear about your plan and what you Mm -hmm. do, like with your obliques and your pull-ups, the better. Yeah. This is what I'm trying to get my, my dad on. He's 81 and he's an avid walker, which I'm thrilled about. But, you know, I keep trying to tell him about sarcopenia. Yes. And, you know, that at, at his age, so much mortality is related, <clears throat> excuse me, to, uh, to accidents and then the downstream kind of domino effect that happens post-accident. So you, you lose muscle mass, you lose balance, uh, you fall, you break a hip, you end up in the hospital. And then all of a sudden you know, get an infection or something else happens and you're kind of in a downward spiral. So, I'm, you know, sarcopenia is a real thing for, for people as you age. Um, and even, you know, for, I'm 52 and, you know, I've just gotten into resistance training really for the first time in my life. You know, I was an avid cardio guy and a competitive tennis player. And boy, if you care about those things and you start with resistance training, you're, you'll be amazed at how much you're, you're going to up your game because uh, just in the last six to eight months of pretty dedicated resistance training, I can see the spillover into my tennis game and other, just also just movement in general. Um, I think the one element of exercise that often gets short shrift is flexibility. Yes. You know, we focus a lot on cardio. More and more we're focusing on um on uh, resistance training and strength training. Um, but flexibility is probably the one that always gets left off to, you know, as, as the last priority. It, where does that fall within your, within the triumvirate, you know, for you? And, and what are some of the core flexibility practices that you might recommend for people? Flexibility is critical. I mean, I, I feel like your wife, Skylar, is right here with us, um, yeah. extolling the benefits of flexibility. So I started practicing yoga with my great-grandmother when I was five years old. So it's been a through line of my experience with movement. It's been a salvation through my medical training. It helped me, you know, stand in operating rooms for 18 hours at a time. It's helped me through the challenges of marriage and um, raising children. So I think flexibility and mobility are really critical. I think along with these trends toward sarcopenia and more limited mobility and just, you know, sort of losing that range of motion that so many develop as they get older. It's really a choice. And if you're not making the choice to improve your flexibility, to improve your range of motion, your mobility, then it's choosing for you this path of demise. Mm -hmm. So I think it's critical. You're right. It gets short shrift. You know, a lot of people focus on the aerobic part or the strength training part, and then they barely do the right amount of flexibility training. But this is where I think yoga or some regular practice, perhaps combined and embedded in a spiritual practice can be really helpful, such Mm -hmm. as Tai Chi, such as martial arts any form of flexibility. Yeah. I think that dynamic movement or dynamic stretching, um, to really move the joint through the full range of motion prior to a workout, um, is key. And I think you see better results from your kind of core workout when you do that, when you have the patience to do that. 
Um, and then I always try to do some kind of static, uh, flexibility work kind of post-workout. Um, at least that's, that's kind of my, my routine. Do you uh, practice yoga? You know, I have my own little rickety, uh, <laughs> practice. I generally have a, I have a practice that's in the sauna. Oh, that's um, good. Yeah. You get a twofer. You get a twofer, you get all the sauna benefits. Um, and then, you know, you have a little bit of a sort of body lubricant, I suppose, with the heat, which is a little helpful for me to it's get. It's very helpful. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, all the benefits of, of sauna from heat shock proteins and BDNF and, and all the other good stuff. Yeah, heat shock proteins, BDNF. And I would also say saunas are like a form of moderate exercise. Right. In fact, we, we put people with cardiac failure in saunas, the ones that, you know, can't exercise the way that we're talking about, because it's, again, a form of hormesis that is really gentle and really effective. Yeah. I mean, it raises heart rate, really. So yes. it mimics exercise, even if you're not actively engaged in, in exercise. Um, because we always tend to um, anchor ourselves in, in metabolic health, um, I feel that one thing that we need to touch on before we, we close this particular chapter on exercise is timing and exercise. So as you know, um, I focus a lot on balancing and my blood sugar and regulating glucose levels. And one of the practices that have become central in my life is always moving after I eat, particularly after I eat dinner. Um, because I find that moving your, your muscles are essentially a glucose sink and, um, and they will essentially uptake glucose out of your bloodstream and they don't, although muscle cells do have insulin receptors, they don't always require insulin, I believe to uptake glucose. So, and this can be so simple. I mean, for me, my kids tease me, but I usually do like 50 pushups after dinner. And then, you know, I'll take a, a blood glucose reading, you know, half an hour later and I can see, you know, pretty much that my blood, I don't have these big postprandial spikes. That's right. Um, but you don't have to necessarily do 50 pushups. You can take a walk or even like just do the dishes, just standing up, moving around and stuff like that. But I wonder if there's any other um, bits of wisdom that you can impart around timing and exercise, even when you should be doing your optimal or optimal times for workouts, et cetera. Critical point. So I would say first that the best time to exercise is the time that you're going to do it consistently. Yeah. So for me, as a, a busy mother and entrepreneur and physician, I've got to do it first thing in the morning. I just know from decades that if I wait until four o'clock or five o'clock, it's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, a glass of wine is going to look a lot better. Pretty much anything is going to look a lot better. And so I have to do it non-negotiable first thing in the morning, mm -hmm. especially when you've got a condition like ADD and you need that regular dose. It is non-negotiable. So I would say, first of all, do it when you're going to be consistent. Dial in consistency first, then dial in frequency, then start to dial in intensity, like up and down with intensity. Hmm. So what I, was that? It was consistency... This is a Matt Wilpersism. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so he says cool. dial in consistency first, then frequency, and then intensity. Got it. So don't go for okay. intensity first because you'll burn yourself out. Yeah. So your point about exercising after a meal is is really a valid point. 
We know from some research that was done that you can mitigate glucose spikes with exercise. Even something as simple as a walk after dinner doesn't have to be, you know, a big hike in the mountains. It can be just a 10 or 20 minute walk. So I think that's that's such a valid way to use exercise to try to reduce the, you know, with glucose, what we want is a relatively stable glucose curve. We don't want to be too spiky. And a lot of us have things at dinner that make us too spiky. So you can you can create, you know, kind of this layer of um, having a little more free range in terms of your glucoses if you are exercising. And I happen to be having dinner with you tonight, so I'm really excited to do some push-ups together. Okay. It's not game on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, this is great. I mean, we uh, I think this is a a topic that requires sort of endless probing, and um, I'm psyched to do, do some more of it you know, with you, there's so much that we can do with our bodies. And that's also just incredibly gratifying, um, especially, you know, as we get later into life, um, you know, we want to stay vibrant and vital and keep moving. Um, so, can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. As we wrap up, how do you feel in your body right now at 52 compared to maybe how you felt in your body in your twenties or your teenage years? Like, what does it feel like now in terms of movement? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm I'm much more aware. I have greater awareness of my body just in general. Uh, I'm not as much of sort of a, you know, flailing, malodorous, pimply (laughs) adolescent. I mean, clearly- Skylar still fell in love with you in those days. (laughs) She's blind in one eye. Uh, but you know, clearly like I was an athlete, I've been an athlete all my life. There was certain sort of like wonderful recklessness that one could have with their body at that juncture where you could go out and play, you know, six hours of basketball on hard top and then, you know, drink a, you know, half a case of beer and wake up and do it all over again. Those days are clearly over. Yes. Um, particularly on the alcohol side. If I drank half a case of beer, you wouldn't see me for a week. <laughs> you know, my, my hangover would be so bad. Um, but, you know, remarkably, um, really since I focused on my metabolic health, I can pretty much perform at the same level that I could um, 30 years ago. Yes. Now, um, and with really most of the same skills, like, you know, maybe my reflexes are like a, you know, half a millisecond shorter. Sometimes I, f- I feel like I notice that. Um, but from a quickness and endurance perspective, no problem. I'm out there for two and a half hours playing singles in 90 degree heat. It's just, I don't, it's fine. I can do it multiple days a week. I can do it four or five days a week. Probably shouldn't do it four or five days a week, but I could. So that part of, you know, feels really good. And that is, you know, that's an amazing thing. The body is incredibly resilient. If you treat it well and you train it well, it will, um, it will generally respond, you know, for you. Now, um, does that wear and tear on your joints? You know, particularly for me when I'm pounding on asphalt, that's a question. Um, certainly do I have you know, the same amount of cartilage that I did when I was 20? Probably not. Um, That being said, I think that if you properly train core, you know, you can avoid a lot of the pitfalls that a lot of middle-aged athletes like me have. 
mostly like bad backs, right? I've had I've been in and out of bad backs. Since I have really, really focused on core development, haven't had any problem or knock on wood. I'm not allowed to knock on wood because the producer doesn't want me to knock on wood. But you get it, you know. Yes. So all in all I would say, yeah, I, I feel um I feel really good. Feel really good. But you know, it's not free. <laughs> it's not free. Yeah. Beautifully put. It's not free. Cool. How are you feeling? I feel amazing. I feel better in my body at 56 than I ever have in my life. Hmm. So it's, as you said, it's, you know, it's a fair amount of effort, but it pays off in droves, you know, to be able to slow down the aging process, to feel just so embodied, you know, to mm-hmm. feel like you can do all the things that you want to do, especially as you have more time and wisdom and your kids start to go off to college. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, and it, this goes honestly beyond like musculature per se, um, but it's actually having a greater sort of awareness, an intuitive awareness. And I use that kind of in quotations because I'm generally one that veers towards insp- empiricism and not in, intuition. But I, I mean sort of intuitive by the by really knowing yourself well. Yes. And so this applies not only to like, oh, I feel stronger. But, oh, I feel like I can almost tell you without my glucose monitor yes. where my blood sugar levels yes. are. Yes. Yes. This is, <laughs> this is interoception. Mm-hmm. You, you know, go. this, this yeah. ability to really sense what is true for your body. And I think that's one of the greatest things about getting older and wisdom is that you develop your interoception. Yeah. Cool. I got a word for it now. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode in our new Ask Dr. G series. As I mentioned, we have a special offer for those of you who review the show on Apple Podcasts. By writing a review, you can receive all access to the Commune course platform, which features over 130 courses now on health and wellness for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review, then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your glowing review to receive your free all access for 30 days. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week over week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.